It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny and this is my show. And joining me today is Mr. John Dinsdale of Steel Chair Wrestling Magazine. How are you, sir? I am pretty good. Daylight saving, screwed with my sleep pattern, so I'm slightly drowsier than normal, but. I will try my best to follow along with what was um, an interesting show. Yes, we thought we'd try something a bit different this week. And indeed, we're going to talk about great historical conversations, like what makes things great? Really, what does make things great? What makes things stick in our heads? What makes us remember stuff? Is it the actual occasion or is it the reputation something has afterwards. We're looking at Triple Mania 1, the very first Triple Mania from the 30th of April 1993, so almost exactly 28 years ago. It was at La Plaza de Torres de Mexico City, and it was the first major event for Triple A, or Triple A, as they would say in Spanish. Um, in its history, the company hadn't been going that long, they decided to establish some stars, and they had some big stories to tell. And Paco Pena, who was the first booker of AAA and the owner-operator of AAA, after falling out with CMLL as one of its major creative driving forces and deciding he wanted his name upon the marquee, as it were, he came up with a show and a concept and executed that concept all of those years ago. And AAA is now the biggest promotion in Mexico with CMLL, a close second. In fact, there were rumors early this year that CMLL were going to get bought out by AAA, which had been interesting. And at the time, the whole thing was a bit different compared to the Lucha everyone had been used to. Um, John, you are not a Lucha fan by any stretch of the imagination, but I think there was plenty of interesting things here for you. When I said, let's do this, what did you think? I was kind of like, cool, I'm I watch modern AAA a fair bit. I usually check out the modern day AAA of it, like Triple Manias. I've never seen much of the old stuff, so I was kind of like, oh, this will be fun. Or at least it should be. And uh, it's it's not so much that I'm not a Lucha fan, it's just uh, this isn't exactly Lucha as I know it. No, I think we need to put some background information into what's going on. So... Forever and ever and ever and ever, there was one major promotion in Mexico, and that was CMLL, or EMLL. The promotion was EMLL, and the organization that looked after the belts was CMLL. It is still the oldest wrestling single, singularly continuous oldest wrestling promotion on planet Earth. It's older than WWE. It's older than all of the promotions in Japan. It's older than even the what's left of, well, joint promotions doesn't exist anymore. It's older than any of the British promotions. It's older than any of the European promotions. It's even older than catch wrestling in Austria. It's the oldest promotion in the world. And then in the 1960s, a couple of the big stars were basically, they looked after Arena Mexico, and there was a big, uh, another arena down the street, and occasionally the promotions would swap back and forth, and generally there was no one was ever out of work out of the big names, but they'd get farmed out to the independents to make sure that 
they uh, you know, were kept fresh and also they couldn't keep demanding so much money because you know you just fire them and send them somewhere else. <laughs> anyway, the big day, a couple of two or three of the big names of the time kind of got wind of this and figured out when they were going to get released, as it were, and set up their own promotion. And that was the UWA, which lasted from the late 1960s all the way up until about 1992. One of the reasons why UWA finished was basically because they relied on the big stars and with the Mexican economy being less than stable. The payday for the big stars from North America, like Big Van Vader, for instance, uh, wasn't as stable as it could have been. Things kind of got played out. The company was kind of just on its uppers, and it and it died out very spectacularly and very quickly. They went from like filling arenas to nothing at all within two or three years. So then Paco Pena, who was one of the creative talents behind CMLL and one of the driving forces why CMLL beat UWA in the long run, wasn't really th getting the credit he thought he deserved for uh, um, the work he was doing with CMLL. And found some money, found a backer, took CMLL's biggest star, Conan, its biggest heel, Cian Caras, and a bunch of others like Helgio Del Santo and Lismark and a bunch of wrestlers who could actually go really hard and started booking young new talent who were really, really good. And AAA went from zeros to heroes within about six months. They were the most compelling wrestling going in North America at the time. And they were big enough to do a super show at La Plaza de Paris in Mexico City, a 41,000-seater stadium, the largest bull ring in the world, which they managed to pack 48,000 paying customers into. And boy, does it look like they've packed 48,000 customers into it. Yeah, the uh, crowd shots are quite spectacular. There's no, there, they are sardined in there. There is no room to breathe. You, you couldn't get away with it in Europe, like in post-Hillsborough Europe. There is no way you could do that, is there? I just imagine it breaks a whole lot of fire safety regulations, to be honest. They put 7,000 people in the bull ring. Which is quite... Uh... I'm surprised they managed that. There isn't a lot of space there once the ring's put in and the entranceway and things like that. Yeah, people are crammed. And yeah. they're not complaining about it. Which... No, they're very happy. <laughs> <laughs> they're well pleased. Um, the actual card itself is introduced by uh, the two regular TV commentators. One, Technikos, that's Babyface. And one, Rudos, one, but that's Heel. Um, though they were kind of even-handed in their commentary, even though I don't speak Spanish, I could figure out what was going on between them. Um, and it opened with a Luchadoras match. Les Rocaras, Martha Villalobos, Pantera Sorana, and Wendy defeated La Rosa, Lola Gonzalez, and Vicky Carenza. I probably shouldn't give away the match news because you might want to watch this, but let's be honest, you, you probably haven't seen it already. If you haven't seen it already, you... you, you you might want to watch this for a guide. So, I don't know. We'll give the results away because I don't think it's that... In, that you'll know. It's a 20-plus year old show. Yeah, We've we been generous. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's been warning. This isn't like last Tuesday's New Japan show. So, anyway, what was interesting about this match is, first of all, Luchadoras did not appear on the AAA television show very often, if at all, at the time. They're in the opening match here. Los Rockeras... 
are wearing remarkable outfits, especially Martha Little Lobos, who's wearing a heavy metal T-shirt, a Metallica T-shirt, with a pair of leggings and wrestling in bare feet with a ridiculous haircut. I wonder where she got that idea from. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> uh, La Rosa, Lola Gonzalez and Vicky Carenza are actually very handy technicos, and the heels are very heelish heels. And this is a lot of fun for what it is, and actually a technically sound wrestling match. What were your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, this really was a great, like, this was a great example of Technicos versus Heels. And I was kind of like, okay, yeah, this this is fun. It's the opening. This should set the tone for what we're going to see. It's, it was quite chaotic, quite technical, as you said. And, yeah, Las Roqueras are quite damn fun as Heels. Yes, they've got a good sense of teamwork. And triple teams and double teams are plenty. And La Rosa, La Gonzalez, and Vicky Carenza just are really good at selling. Because like, this is kind of like, you've got to establish what Lucha's about, okay? So if you're a luchador or a luchadores, the two most important things in your life are your ring entrance and your outfit. After that, everything else is kind of a blur. But those two things are more important than anything else. I cannot stress enough, you have to look good and do cool stuff whilst looking good. You can be the absolute drizzling shits, and there are people on this card who prove that with 30-year careers who can barely do an armbar. However, they looked amazing. So there you go. <laughs> As long and as you've the, got a character and an image, you will succeed in Lucha. Yes. Well, yeah. you would have back then. Yeah. Daniel Bryan rather famously said he managed to get over everywhere he went, except Mexico, because he doesn't have a strong ring entrance, and he wears tights and boots. And that just won't cut it. So there you go. Has Mexico <laughs> ever seen The Fiend yet? No, but I'd imagine it'd go down. Well, I assume they have on Mexican television. Um, God, I, if they ever do a live tour to Mexico with The Fiend, then that's going to... Um, yeah, that's going to go down well. They do do, quite often. Interestingly, Rey Mysterio doesn't wear a mask when they're touring in Mexico if he's wrestling on tour with them. I don't think he does house shows anymore. But for he's a wearing a mask on this one. Uh, this was long before he like he lost the mask in WCW to Kevin Nash. Oh yeah. Yeah. So if they're wrestling in Mexico, he'll wear a mask on TV for the continuation of the storylines. But at house shows, he won't wear a mask as a reference, as a mark of respect to the to the um, mask a, tradition. Athletic boards, no, the athletic boards in Mexico who could ban him from wrestling in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Over, wow. Yeah, they still have that kind of power. So, that's, yeah. That's quite strict. Yes, yes. So, if you lose a mask, you lose a mask. And that's that. As we'll talk about later on. This is like, this is serious stuff. There's laws and things. Anyway. Second match. El Salcedo. Or Salsa Dude, as I would like to call him. Who came in and did a salsa with the pretty young lady who was accompanying Super Calo, who some of you may remember from his short WCW run where he had those incredible matches with Rey Mysterio and Psychosis. And Winners, which is the, the, just a dreadful gimmick for a guy who was all right. <laughs> I mean, you probably appreciated his mullet. Yes, 
I did appreciate his mullet. Not it was hilarious because at first I couldn't tell if that was hair or if it was one of those, you know, the sort of beaver tail hats American pioneers had. Yes. I was genuinely for the first minute just like, is that a, <laughs> is that a hat? Is it hair? And then I'm kind of like, oh no, that that's just a mullet, right? Jim's gonna be all over this guy. Oh yeah, no, I I can remember watching it at the time going that that hair's fantastic. It is a gorgeous perm, you have to say. It's it's a higher level of of nineties awfulness. Made even better by the Silver Lame outfit he's wearing. And um, his, yeah. Um, and the fact that no one really cares about him that much. And he would eventually turn heel. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he was all right, I guess. But yes, the hair was the hair was great. I like Salsero. He appeared to, like, the, the highlight of his match was his entrance. He was one of those guys. I was going to say, out of the sort of three, Super Carlo was the only one that was really technically sound. Yes. The other two were competent, but they weren't setting the world on fire, was they? They were there to be character. Yes. They were the other three wrestlers in the match. And now let us talk about sexual politics of the 1990s. Babe Sharon, Mae Flowers, and Rudy Renya, they were Exotico wrestlers. Now, for those of you not come across Exotico wrestlers, before they are essentially gay characters. Well, no, I think it's more drag wrestling than drag wrestling. Yeah, I mean, well, me and Chelsea and Alex kind of talked about this when we looked at the LGBT community in professional wrestling a few years back. But we, as none of us were qualified, and we were quite uncertain of the was it positive or was it negative thing at the time. Now we were all a bit more learned about it. I do think Exoticos are a very positive influence on modern day wrestling. And Maximo is a good choice, a good example, actually, um, of how positive it can be for the LGBTQI community. Uh, Maximo is now a AAA wrestler, for those of you who don't know, who is an Exotico uh, and has very amorous and comedic traits that are exceptional. He's really, really good at it. He's one of CMLL's biggest stars, now wrestles for AAA one of their biggest stars, and is a married bloke with two kids and a devout Catholic. I always just look to uh, Cassandra and the yes. sort of effect he had. Like, just tonight there is a um, Butch versus Scars Cassandra Cup. That's happening tonight. And just, yeah, it was like at the um, Big Air Brunch when he came out and finally got like the respect and adoration he deserved from a crowd that were, like, he'd inspired. It's all really... I, I do consider Exotico as a positive influence. I do now more so than I used to when Exoticos were always heels. They were never baby faces. And, um, you know, it was now Maximo is the prime example of like, mm. he goes to Pride and goes to the Pride Festival and tries to do his very best for uh, LGBTQI rights in Mexico, which is still a heavily conservative country. There is, you know, there is still, you're allowed to, there is, um, gay couples are allowed to marry in Mexico now. That's allowed, but people will still get, you know, attacked and verbally abused in the street. And casual homophobia is, is, is just there. Even liberal people are casually homophobic. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky road to hoe, isn't it, really? Head of, head uh, outside, outside of the politics of their um, country, they are a they tend to be a positive influence for like yeah. LGBTQI+. 
plus people. So yeah. So I mean, Sunny Kiss is the prime example. Is the probably the most famous Exotico in North American wrestling outside of Mexico. Definitely. You know, and he's obviously he's a he's a she and or he because uh, Sunny doesn't mind any pronoun um, is an influence on younger wrestlers especially. And I did read a ESPN did actually interview Maximo, and I read it whilst I was watching this and the. And Maximo said, "I'm." He said, "People want to wrestle. People, kids want to dress up like you know their big heroes." And he said, "There's still kids that want to dress up like Maximo, and that's really cool." You know, so yeah, he sees it as as a positive thing, and I, I have to agree with him. And especially because it's a straight guy, an incredibly straight <laughs> guy doing it, uh, is quite quite cool. But back in these days, we were still like involved in technical. Um, sorry. Exoticos always being heels, he made even more remarkable by the fact that Paco Pena, who was the sorry Antonio Pena, who was the original booker for AAA, was gay, but he still stuck to these original tropes, which is interesting. I suppose they were just trying to play their part as best they could. Yeah, I mean, you've got a new product, you can't really. You're trying to push some boundaries, you can't rock every boat, can you? No, unfortunately, when you're a product of a time like this, you've got to sort of bend, not break. Yes, they were they were on national television. They got two hours of national TV every week. This was broadcast live on national television. You know, and it's amazing it didn't hurt the draw. <laughs> this didn't hurt the draw. It I was... suppose because you had... Exoticos, which are character wrestlers against other character wrestlers, it all kind of it made the match what it was. It was there to be sort of fun over yeah. the sort of you weren't meant to think about it too much. No, this is kind of house show territory. Most of this card is kind of like house show throwaway matches, isn't it? Yeah, the first half is um, a bit of a struggle. <laughs> Which we could say about the same for the next match. Mysterioso, Rey Mysterio Jr. Yes, that Rey Mysterio Jr. Here at about 17 years old and about three stone wet through. Volador, as in, you know, Volador Sr. And they defeated Los Destructoros, Rocco Valentina, Tony Acre and Volcano. Tony Acre and Rocco Valentina always worried me on the grounds they used their real names and wore masks. So I'm like, well, why, why would you? What? That doesn't make any sense. I... But there you go. Yeah. I, did. I was there kind of like, <laughs> hang on a sec. Because I had to check cage match. I'm like, wait, that's their real names? Why are you wearing masks then? People know who you are. Yeah, it's... exactly. People can just go on Google and search you on it. As well, they couldn't at the time. It was 1993. But people can look in a phone book and find you. That's... <laughs> I that think, just seems weird. I think it was kind of like because Volcano wore a mask and they wanted to look like uniform. And I suppose they were kind of their equivalent to demolition. And they had that kind of matching gear, the black black yeah. kind of vaguely S&M look. I think it was, <laughs> there was a lot of that going on. It was kind of like the, the demolition gimmick in the sense of three guys who look exactly the same. We can get away with a lot. Uh, mm. which they did do. Um, obviously, Mysterioso, Rey Mysterio Jr. and Volador are three guys who 
do not regularly team together. This was just a regular tag match. This wasn't for like titles or anything. It was card filler, but it was very good card filler. Always a big fan of Mysterioso. Uh, always had the body and the look. Volador was an exceptional professional wrestler. They were big stars of their time, but they did not transcend wrestling the way Rey Mysterio Jr. did. And there was plenty going on here to say he was going to be a big star. He gets the first pinfall in the match, and the crowd really are into him a lot, aren't they? Definitely. He's by far the one getting the most reception. Yeah, he's he's he doesn't get chance to show off in this the way you kind of want him to. He was producing much better matches at the time if he had the right opponents to be with, and that's not to say Destructoros are bad. They kind of have to be kind of like demolition kind of big guy thrash matches where they're beating people up. And though they do feed for the for the Technicos a lot in this match, they aren't technically adept enough like with someone, say, like Zikosis or La Parker to really keep up with Rey Mysterio Jr. And as a result of that, this is kind of a little plottier than it should be. However, there's plenty of eye-flying action from Volador Mysterioso and Rey Mysterio Jr. As you go through the card, they do look very good. And the match itself is very, very good. I think this is probably the strongest of the multi-mans as you go further on into the card because uh, the rest of them are a bit messy. They don't win like faces. <laughs> Considering they're meant to be the good guys, they win on a ref distraction. Like, yeah. literally, the ref gets distracted and Volador pushes Myster- I think it's Mysterio. Yeah, Volador pushes Mysterioso into a pin after Los Destructores already has them, like, dead to rights. It's It's like, oh... So you you don't have to play within the rules to win. No, no, that's the thing. It's yeah, that's the I, I had that written down in my notes actually. Yes, you you're right. I will point out Destructoroso's finishes are awesome. Like their six man finishes are amazing. There's like a whole stream of them, and I'm like, more people should pick up on these finishes and use them because they look amazing. Yeah, we don't have enough like triple team finishes. We need them. Yes, and people should go back to this. I also really appreciate the fact that Volador's theme tune was uh, A Little Respect by um, Erasure. I was going to comment on that, yes. I couldn't tell whose theme it was because they skipped the entrances on this one, but I'm like, someone came out to Erasure. That's amazing. Yes, because it's Volador because of the line, I'll be forever blue, and Volador always wears blue. Oh... See what they did there. Speaking uh, of music, we forgot to mention this, and I don't understand how we did, how well we forgot to mention. It, but we got talk of caught up in sexual politics. Julio Iglesias was in the front figging row. Yeah, I I can't say that. I was just like, whoa. I think uh, was it Mayflowers or it was Rudy Renya pulled him out of the front row, gave him a kiss in the in the second match. Yeah, like the biggest name in Spanish pop, Spanish speaking pop history. Was it this show? That just goes to show how popular wrestling was at the time. Yeah, and, and how much of a big deal it was to be there. Especially Triple A being there. Yeah, it's it's quite remarkable. This entire show, to be honest with you. It's more... gonna... Carol, I was also going to laugh at just like the complete lack of interest in copyright laws. Oh yeah, it's Mexico. 
you can get away with things. That still goes on today because nobody is going to travel down there to be like, oh yeah, cease and desist. No, that's that's it. You know, you are talking about a period of time that if the local drug cartels' favoured politicians were not winning the election, they would just send armed units to each um, boot, each uh, polling station and ensure that they won the election. <laughs> no, I think you will find this many people voted for this candidate. They're like, who are you voting for today? <laughs> yes. Our candidate? Good. Yeah. What's that? You're not? Oh, you're more than welcome to, but please bear in mind your three dead relatives are actually voting. Yeah, and so on and so forth. Um, this was not a pleasant time in Mexican history, to be honest with you. However, luchadors were, were of high standard. Um, where was we? Yes. Volador's theme tune, little respect. Yeah. Uh, shall we move on to the next match? Because I think, we've got, I think we've covered that one as best as we can. This next one is just a complete and utter mess. <laughs> it is. And it kind of highlights like the, the issues of the refereeing, which we haven't discussed. Because up until now, the refereeing has actually been quite stable. I say we save the refereeing for the next match when it oh, really okay, pisses then. me off. I will point out at this point, there are three referees on this particular card. El Chocolato, who's a Rudos referee. Pompey, uh, who's also a Rudos referee. And Pepe Casas. Father of heavy metal and Negro Casas, arguably like you know two of the best wrestlers who ever lived, and he's their dad. <laughs> and he also also happens to be in this match, though I don't think Pepe actually refereed many of heavy metal's matches down the years. Um, so this was the best of two four, best two out of three four six man tag matches. All of these were El Hijo del Santo, son of El Santo, who is like over his tag team partner Octagon and Villano Crez. Uh, again, a guy who is over versus Ferza Guerrero, who is the father of um, Juventu Guerrero. Heavy Metal, who is the son of Pepe Casas, who we just talked about. Rambo, who's who's Rambo. Yes, and you can again, guess we're talking it. about you can the, get... oh, yes, oh. you know, slight militaristic kind of outlook in life. And this was mess for a start. Heavy Metal's turning. Uh, wearing a t-shirt that says fuck you <laughs> i appreciate that to be honest yeah. Yeah, it, other than that the match is a disjointed mess from top to bottom um made worse by the fact that heavy metal is in the beginnings of a technico's turn a babyface turn so there's lots of like sly subtle things that are there for the mexican audience to get their heads around but it doesn't make it any easier for someone who's not used to Lucha Libre to understand. Um, I have a question, because you might know this. Yes. Who came first, Octagon or the Great Sasuke? Oh, good question. Because they are both heavily, they both have very similar attires. Um, I'm going to say... Oh, they was about the same time. Octagon, I... I'm going to look it up. You keep talking I feel like about it's a very Billy, happy so. coincidence that they both just happen to look fairly similar mask-wise, and they're both flippy guys. It's just it feels like it's one just, of those sort of divine it, coincidences. Because for all I know, neither of them could actually know who the other is. I'm just uh, I saw it and instantly my mind just went, "Is a great Sasuke in this match?" Wait, no, that's oh, that's Octagon. Yeah. 
Um, I'm trying to think because Great Sasuke may have wrestled for UWA before AAA was formed because of play, uh, UWA had a the Mexican office that was run by um, uh, the sorry the Gran Hamada was wrestled for UWA Mexico and then founded UWA Japan. Um, so they could, they possibly could have seen each other. I'm trying to think. So Great Sasuke debuted in uh, Great Sasuke is 51 years old. I hope I look like that when I'm 51 years old. Octagon is 60. So the likelihood is Octagon came first then. Octagon started on the 6th of December, 1981. Yes, he definitely started first. Because Sasuke didn't start until 1990. So Octagon came first. And we should... Also, just the other fun sort of Mexico-Japan connection. Villano 3, we have covered before on this show. We have. Do you want to As he also goes by the Monaco... Monaco? Monica... Buffalo Salvaje, and if you remember correctly, he was in the BJW shows we covered. Yes, he was. Where he was pretty much outshowing people because he was diving way too far for people to catch. (laughs) (laughs) You also have to bear in mind, his father was one of the founding members on the founding roster of the UWA, so it's no surprise he was one of the founding rosters of AAA. He didn't particularly have any connection to the CMLL promotion. Heavy Metal and Negro Cassis always wrestled in opposite promotions. They've never, I don't think they've ever wrestled in the same territory at the same time. And I think that was kind of stay out of each other's road kind of thing. Because that mm. makes sense. Because, you know, otherwise we could get lumbered together and they both wanted to do different things. Heavy Metal, as well, is one of the fastest wrestlers I've ever seen. Like, the speed he gets from one side of the ring to another is unreal his ability to like just sprint is like better than any other wrestler i've ever seen and the speed he's going at here is is incredible he's by far and away one of the fastest people on this show and again it's quite spectacular to watch yes uh fuerza guerrero was of course uh invented guerrero's father and fuerza guerrero is like it's the mosquitoes. That's basically what their gimmick is. That's what Hooventude's gimmick was originally. If you remember back to the early days of WCW, using the uh, AAA wrestlers, he wore the mask then, and had that um, big eye, red and blue mask. It was kind of like based on the head of a mosquito. And Fuerza was always a very, very competent wrestler. The big feud, obviously, was Rey Mysterio and Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Fuerza Guerrero, Juventud Guerrero. They had tag matches all over Mexico for years because they're the obvious pairing, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. You know, big chunky uncle slash dad with super speedy, technically gifted aerial masters as sons slash nephews. Away you go. Writes itself. And Rambo was Rambo. And uh, and the referee was Pompey. And that was about it. (laughs) It was just a mess. Trying to describe this match would take more than more time than we have, and would probably confuse more people than it would enlighten. 
it was all the worst bits of Lucha Libre, even though it had some of the biggest names in the industry and some of the most influential names in the industry and some of the biggest drawing names in wrestling history on it, they all still managed to contrive a match that wasn't very watchable. Um, a lot of low blows. A lot of low blows and contrived spots and Heavy Metal trying to tell the story of the early stages of his, of his Technicos term because he, he's going to become a, a Technicos in a couple of months' time um, and he's not happy with the Rudos. There's all sorts going on with this, isn't there? It's... <laughs> It's a mess. It is. It's a Jackson Pollock of a wrestling match. <laughs> this needed, if they were going to do what they wanted to do with this, it needed to be higher up the card and more controlled. This was just kind of like, right, we're the last part of the first half. Let's just go out there, do a bunch of stuff, make ourselves look good, and get the hell out of here. That's pretty much it. Yes. That, that's your lot. Uh, next up. We had a Mexican National Light Heavyweight Championship best of two out of three falls match with Lismark, who was seconded by Volador and La Parker, who didn't have a second at all and perhaps should have done. Um, this one had a real big fight feel to it. I think this should have been the main event. La Parker came out to Thriller. This it was amazing. Been. Yeah, that's, that's what he did. He'd still do it now if they'd let him. Um, <laughs> I quite like his MLWC match, I think. Yeah. Oh, but this this was it. This Leparka was he was ace this time. This was this was giant like top Leparka action. Leparka wasn't very long into his wrestling career at this point. He was a technically gifted Rudos. The fans had grown to dislike immensely. Lismark was one of the most well known luchadors in Mexico. He built his career in CMLL. He was loyal to Antonio Pena. And he went with him to AAA and took the Mexican National Light Heavyweight Championship with him. The Mexican National Light Heavyweight Championship, like all the Mexican National Championships, were actually controlled by the Athletic Boxing and Wrestling Board of Mexico City. They aren't controlled by AAA or CMLL. In fact, that title still exists and is defended in CMLL now. It depends on who has the championship at the time and where they go. So if they are a AAA wrestler and they hold that belt and their contract wrestler runs out with AAA, they are free to go to CMLL and take the championship with them. So there you go. <laughs> Never build your company around that title then. No, essentially. But it makes sure that the... Boxing and Lucha Board of Mexico City are always relevant. <laughs> yeah. And apparently there is, um, I was reading that, that Maximo interview today with the SPN, they actually do give out wrestling licenses and you have to pass a physical and you have to have medical tests and you have to prove yourself safe in the ring to actually continue wrestling. See, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's that's actually a really good system. Yeah, it is. Because it's like, you know, you cannot sully our championships with your unathletic presence. I mean, don't get me wrong, you're probably giving one company way too much power over something, but the idea in in theory is sound. Not for one company, all of the companies. Hmm? They're not a company. I used to use play on that, I don't think you heard it. They aren't a company, they are a wrestling board. But they're by the city of Mexico. Thing is, with some like athletic boards, they can be very 
just based on some of the horror stories I've heard from American athletic boards. But then again, yeah. I suppose Mexico is a lot less split in terms of who controls things. Yeah, you know, there was the time in Louisiana that TNA booked a show in Louisiana and forgot people actually needed wrestling licenses. <laughs> oh, the weird oh, hard cost like rules for I think it's California and Vegas and things like that. Oh yeah, there's all sorts of little things like you had to have a promoter's license in Louisiana. So one of the local promoters, when they held WrestleMania at the Superdome a few years ago, one of the local promoters actually had to be made an employee of everybody who held an indie show that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> So because he he was the only one with a Louisiana license and no one had realized until they started booking stuff and then they're wondering why they were getting no traction with the athletic commission and it was like you haven't got a license you can't do that here so yeah they were all held under one person's licenses so yeah it just athletic boards are weird but you know right anyway this match it did feel like a big championship match what did you think to it See, I had high hopes for this match, and for the most part, it was really fun for what it yeah. was. Like, I love La Parker. I, I can't hate La Parker, or L.A. Parker, as he's known now. It's just... Oh, the refing. The refereeing, yes, is... The goddamn refereeing in this match is laughable. Yes. Ugh. Do you want to explain? Well, the, it was Pepe Casas, wasn't it? He was refereeing this one. And the first fall ends up with a near fall that Pepe calls as a pinfall. And then the Athletic Commission guys were like, wait, hang on, his shoulder was up. And then they went back and forth, so they, they, but they threw the match out. Then they reinstated the match. Then they threw it out again, and then they reinstated the match, and then they had the rest of the match, which Liz Mark ended up winning. Which is bullshit. Because <laughs> LaParque lost. Uh, sorry, cheated, and got this, and Liz Mark um, got disqualified. Oh, sorry, he got disqualified, Liz Mark won. It was a long way around, and it was especially a long way around because they took such a long time to get going. When I first saw it, I was like, ooh, slow pace, they're building something big. And this and feels like for 10 cool. minutes. And then you realise, actually, no, they're just going really slowly. <laughs> There's like 10 minutes where you're just watching people um and ah over something, a couple of replays of the same thing you've just seen, and you were like, yeah, that was stupid. Why are you still going on about this? Yes. It's... I mean, it was, it was a nice touch of realism in the sense, of course, the board, if they sat there watching it and they disagreed with the referee, would call the referee over and discuss it. That was nice. I like that nod to reality. It was cool. However, it didn't really make things flow. You could have done it in a different way. If you wanted to have Leparka lose by cheating, just have him lose by cheating. Don't give him a fake win. Take it away and then break our hearts. Yeah, you got to bear in mind he's the heel at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am forgetting that, to be honest. But still, it's just... Uh... <laughs> it's like... Your, your big hero won... Because a ref got something wrong and had to start again. That's still not very heroic. No, nobody it's wins not. here. It's not, but also it ties in with that sense of fairness. You think about like 
the national psyche of the people watching the show, like Canadian wrestling, watch the old Stampede stuff, and it is so slow. Like, like British wrestling at the time is a lot faster, but it's because Canadian people get very angry at cheating because they do because that's the way they're brought up. So they so you don't have to do as much. The so heels don't have to do as much to get ahead. So it's really slow because nothing really happens much until the heel cheats. You know, there's, and it's, it's really good, don't get me wrong, but it's like the pacing's completely different to what other promotions do. And I think Mexico's partly of that as well. You don't have to do an awful lot to get heat as a Rudos, do you? No, not really. A few suggestive pauses, a bit of dickheadery, and yeah, it works. Yeah. Um, I think Lismark was the right guy for Laparka to take on to build his legacy, though, because Lismark was one of those guys, a guy who could make you. And he certainly made Laparka in this feud. But I think as well, I was watching it, and I was like, we normally associate someone being made with, like, you know, the Bret Hart, Steve Austin thing of one perfect match and one perfect moment at the end of a match, and that's what makes Steve Austin the star. But this was kind of more of a case of slogging away in a feud for months on end until the guy's over. And then once he was over, he stayed over. I think the the funny thing for me is everyone remembers LaParka. Until today, I didn't actually know who Lismark was. Which is probably just indicative of the time period I'm from. You didn't read my obituary of him in Steel Chair Magazine two years ago when he passed away, did you? Was that Lismark? That was Lismark, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> to be fair, it was two years ago. Yeah, that's, well, it was 18 months ago. That's but, yeah. my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Lismark is sadly no longer with us, but he was a big name in CMLL. I think as well, though, you have to bear in mind, Lismark was like 43 at this point. He was probably at the peak of his career. And Laparka was just about hitting his stride, wasn't he? Mm. You know, and Lismark never, Lismark never had the opportunities to wrestle in North America the same way Laparka did. Like, how many times have you seen that gif of Laparka clobbering Disco Inferno around the back of the head with a chair? You know, so it's, it's, it's unfair to... Like, it's kind of, of a shame, actually, because Lismark would have probably done quite well in America. Yeah, he did do quite well in Japan on the times he toured over there. Um, I think he did a couple of Fantastic Mania tours, just the very early ones, um, and wrestled quite a lot in in Mexico. But he never really caught on in the States because he's kind of like the luchador's luchador. He's the right guy for the right place. And, you know, he's size-wise, he's a light heavyweight. Here's another point here. Laparka was considered a light heavyweight then, because he was only about 20. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, there you go. I didn't mean for that to sound like a knock on Lismark either. I'm just saying he did his job really well, because the world still knows who Laparka is. Yes, that's the point, isn't it? He got uh, him over, and he never like declined in being uh, over. Laparka's 55 years old. And he's still going now. MLW Tag Champion. Yeah. With his son. 55. 
Yeah, it's insane. And arguably, he's as good now in a different role as he was then. Yeah, then he was trying to. He was the young man on the way up. Twenty-eight years ago, how old he been? So it'd been fifty-five, thirty-five. So twenty-eight then. So he would have been like into his career. He'd have stabilized. He'd got a gimmick that finally worked, and he was getting pushed. So yeah, it was. He was the right guy at the right place, and just kind of heal that AAA needed. He would end up being like AAA's biggest star for a long time, and he was certainly the first homemade star Triple A had. So let's just move on to the best two out of three falls stars. They all are. Love Machine Art Bar, Mascara Sagrada and Mascarita Sagrada defeated Blue Panther, Jarito Estrada and Jerry Estrada in a, another kind of disconnected mess, to be honest with you. Made even worse by the fact you had two heel referees. Who? To be fair, at this point, I just kind of stopped paying attention to refs because I was kind of like, okay, they they have no control here. They're all they're all just kind of in it for themselves, and I'm just there like, let's just watch this car crash and see who gets the hand raised at the end. <laughs> it's like alliance has meant nothing to me by this point. I was kind of just like, I I I don't know what's going on half the time. There's just Bodies flying Bo- everywhere, people getting attacked, and yeah, this. Mascara There's a guy called Love Machine, Machine, for Christ's sake. You know who Love Machine is, right? Yes, I do. It's just, Good. Uh, it's just seeing a match graphic with a, a, a JPEG and just Love Machine at first kind of cracked me up. Yeah. This is bore in mind that Louis Piccoli's AAA name was Madonna's boyfriend. This is true. Yeah, and that won't long out long after this. Anyway, so Love Machine was friggin' Art Bar, as in Eddie Guerrero and Art Bar, as in Los Gringos Locos, as in the biggest heel in Mexican wrestling history. Here, he was a babyface. They haven't found his natural role for him yet. Um, as being a uh, xenophobic, slightly, well, no, actually racist um, American. Here he was a happy-go-lucky babyface who was in a bit, bit of a few, bit of a set two with Blue Panther uh, over some heel shenanigans. Um, and he, he was a fairly in-your-face babyface, and he kind of worked. Mascara Sagrada was known as the magic of the mask and the mystery of the mask and was kind of a tribute to the entire culture of mask wearing in Mexico, Mexican wrestling. And he was always a competent babyface and was really quite good. Mascarita Sagrada was based upon his character, obviously, and he's arguably the best technical wrestler on this card <laughs> and was easily outshone the original version of Mascara Sagrada by a long way. Um, even though Sagrada was a big star, Mascarita Sagrada was a huge star and is still a huge star. Even now, he had a run on Lucha Underground and we've talked about him before because he was on the first FMW, I think the third anniversary show, uh, wrestling as Ultraman Tito or whatever it was, the small Ultraman person was. Uh, yeah, did, I was going to say, we need to, if we need to comment the fact, this is a... What, are they? I don't know the... Polite term for them. 
Um, little people's match is considered condescending. Dwar- uh, dwarfs is quite ha- they're quite happy with that now. I think is the correct term. He is um, a dwarf version of Mascara, and he is the best wrestler in this match by a long, 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 long way. Like he's pulling off shit that you'd expect the bigger guys to do and can't. He's he is really damn good. I once saw him pull like AAA had the biggest cage in wrestling. It was like twelve feet on top of the K on top of the ring. And I saw him do a dive off the top of that cage onto uh I think it was Jake Roberts one night. Jesus. Absolutely fearless and perfect and timing was just better than anyone else I've ever seen and could sell and yeah, he's just incredible. You know, he was he was just on another planet. You may bear in mind that even WWE kind of like tried to build some things around him when they were wrestling. Um, but yeah, it's 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 just ace. Oh, we should go through the others as well. Blue Panther was a long time heel. Um, he he was um, he was good. Exactly what he wanted to be. He was a good Rudos, and um, he was um, a good character wrestler, very popular and over with the crowd. Jerry Estrada as well was good, good Rudos, and again very over with the crowd. Jerito Estrada was kind of based upon uh, Jerry Estrada, though I'm not sure Jerito Estrada was actually a dwarf. He may have just been a short person. <laughs> <laughs> It says here he was five foot. Yes. So, but there you go. Um, yeah, it was it was a solid match, but again, it was just a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Yeah, a lot of these sort of six-man matches are really hard to follow just because, again, I wasn't really raised on Lucha, so sort of seeing a lot of the sort of hectic nature of it and the sort of all-over-the-place storytelling... It just kind of all blurs into one bit where I'm sort of just like, okay, Masquerita is amazing. The rest of them, yeah, you're all right. Love Machine was going to be greater than Love Machine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Anywho, it, it was good for what it was, but it didn't really send anything up or send anything anywhere. And, you know, it was about the Bloom Behind the Love Machine feud, which probably needed a singles match to kind of like make it worthwhile. But in a short, should have been in the position heavy metals match was. Yes, really. Anywho, we move on to the first of three main events. Was it three main events or two main events? Two main events. Mask versus hair. Best two out of three falls. Pablo Aguayo versus Mascro Arno 2000, which translates as Mask of the Year 2000. Um, This was kind of showed you where championship matches really play in the lucha pro wrestling pecking order then no one really cares about them as much as they care about bet matches this is an aspueta match um paro aguayo again massive massive draw for uwa and cmll in the 70s throughout the 80s and into the 90s uh mascara arno known as the father of 20 sons because of his influence on young wrestlers in uh, CMLL and in AAA um, down the years, though he doesn't actually have 20 children, though no one's quite sure. Um, <laughs> um, 
this was an absolutely heated affair. These two have been at each other's throats for a very, very long time and in CMLL, in UWA, and in AAA. And it was a kind of big, big match blow-off you needed to, to really give it something plenty of edge on a big, massive main event. And Pero Aguayo is an outstanding babyface. And Mascaro Aino, 22,000, is an outstanding heel. And this was worth the price of admission, I think. What do you think about it, John? See, um, I didn't quite have all the historical context you did. Like, I could tell going into it from how they acted that this was one of those big, superheated feuds. From the way they were just trying to murder each other, the continuous <laughs> use of brass knucks, the fact that Guaro was bleeding. A guy who was bleeding a hell of a lot. It was just... It was very, very visceral. It was a very... Very sort of... Show-don't-tell story to this one. And obviously with the stakes, that's what you want. Because losing your mask is a big deal, as is losing your hair. And so to see these two just kind of beat the hell out of each other for what felt like forever... Over something like this was really what you wanted from a match like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it also helped, like, um, the ref actually enforced the rules. <laughs> yeah, there was proper refing. It was weird. Yes, yes, there was. I also loved Perro turning up in white tights. You knew it was going to be a good match because Perro's turning up in white tights. He's going to bleed if he has to slice himself open. Um <laughs> And I also uh, kind of like the fact that at one point Mascara's just like, ah, screw it. I can sacrifice a fall here and just cracks him in the head with brass knuckles right in front of the ref. Yes. He's just like, screw your rules. Bam. Yeah, that that was it. That was the it was the least surreptitious knuckle duster handover in wrestling history because he did it right in front of the referee and the referee was given no choice. Even though he was a Rudos referee, he was given uh, no choice but to, you know, well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to, have to disqualify you now. So, That's yeah. what you want from a heel. They're yeah. that confident in their own abilities. They can sacrifice something for the sake of self-benefit. Yeah, pretty much. That that was that. And it was a good, solid wrestling match. It just every, had everything the way about it. It was a big blow-off match the way you expected it to be. Mascaro Arno's mask was actually started off the evening white uh, with sequins and ended up red with sequins, which will tell you how much he bled. It was a bit of a blood everywhere kind of match. But Paraguay was the master of the big match, you know, kind of thing. It was his deal. You know, um, Peros uh, actually means dog in, um, in Spanish. And you may have noticed that Taya Valkyrie and okay, Aoki Hamada wore Paras de Mal, Dogs of War t-shirts. The faction Paras de Mal was founded by Perro's son, Perro Aguayo Jr. in CMLL and would actually become a company by mistake. <laughs> um, what happened was Peros Aguayo Jr. was under contract to CMLL. I'm sure it was CMLL. And they said, why don't you set up a rival faction and then leave the company in disgust? Run a couple of shows and then 
will come back and have this big payoff supercard. So Peros del Mal set up their own promotion and after a couple of shows realized they were making more money setting up their own promotion than they was working for CMLL. <laughs> How so, do you accidentally fuel your competition? So they set up a third promotion and they're basically, they had the Peros del Mal guys and then anyone who was kind of in between contracts, as so often happened in the old UWA days, like we was talking about before, uh, they would book them. So, like, the murder clowns, who were, like, AAA's biggest draw ever, um, were out of contract. So they, they turned up in Peros de Mal for a, for a feud for, for a bit, and then AAA picked them up on the contract again and they went back. And they only ever worked on nightly deals. So you get massive paydays for going to wrestle for them for one night. Um, and eventually uh, they were absorbed into AAA because AAA hired them as, to do the invasion angle that CMLL could never afford to do because they couldn't afford to hire them back after that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where they ended up. And unfortunately, obviously, Peros Jr. died in a match with Rey Mysterio in 2015, which was really, really sad. Uh, yeah. Awful. Um, and the fact that his father outlived him, I'm sure, was really painful for his father, who also passed away in 2017. But Perez Aguayo was the babyface's babyface in Mexico. He wasn't always. He started off as a heel. But he was filling arenas in hair versus hair matches as early as the late 1970s. And actually, Marty Jones of Oldham's biggest payday was wrestling Perro Aguayo in this very stadium in front of 40,000 people in a hair versus hair match in 1977. <laughs> Damn. There you go. And his first excursion tour outside of Lancashire. <laughs> uh, they made money. It was, it's still a, it, he would not get, apparently Marty said, I never got a bigger payday. Wrestled the main event for New Japan, wrestled at Madison Square Garden, never got a bigger payday than wrestling for UWA uh, in uh, Les Taras, the Mex Mexico City. So there you go. Anywho, shall we move on to the next match? The last match. The last match. Now, here's the thing. The trouble is with that match is that you kind of, the bar's awfully high, isn't it? After yeah. You have this bloodbath and this compelling story. And then you get Conan versus Cien Caras. Now, Conan was the living definition of over. You cannot believe how over Conan was. Conan was more over than a thing that is really over. That's like, one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. The, the Conan, in, he was the CMLL World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, Antonio Pena took him with him when he formed AAA. He was the first triple mega champion, I think, would, would well become the mega championship. He was literally wrestling 10 times a week. He wrestled every day of the week, twice on Sunday, twice on Saturday. Uh, sorry, no, twice on Saturday and three times on Sunday for years on end. That's how over he was. And his long-term rival was another member of the Dynamite Brothers tag team with uh, Mascara Anno 2000 and Universo 2000 was Cien Caras. And Cien Caras was the most overheel in Mexico. He'd been a main eventer in CMLL for a long time. Charismatics, good-looking young man who could wrestle a streak. 
So you get these two together and you think it's going to be absolute dynamite. And they proceed to have a technical wrestling match. <laughs> I think the problem is all the sort of air had been sucked out of the building at that point. They'd just seen this murder of a match with really high stakes. And now here comes a technical match with even higher stakes, but nobody's got any energy left. Yes. So you've kind of got Jake the Snake Roberts there as a hype man. But even that doesn't work, really. No, because Jake wasn't really... I mean, he was known to a Mexican audience. And his facial expressions were outstanding throughout this match. And he hated Conan. But the, but this is where things fall down. Because he didn't like seeing Callas either. Didn't he just start indiscriminately firing at people? Yes. <laughs> and then eventually Conan attacks him at the end of the third fall, and loses the match on a count-out, which under normal circumstances wouldn't matter so much, but this is a career-versus-career career main event. So Conan has just done himself out of his own career by being angry at Jake Roberts, and he was saving CN Karras at the point where he attacked him. So not only has his sworn enemy ended his career... He also found a new enemy in Jake Roberts, but can't do anything about it because now he has to retire. See, it almost sounds like the ultimate dramatic double cross. And it, it would have been perfect were it not a retirement match. Where were it for a title, it would just be like, ha, 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 you screwed yourself out of a title. But it's not. It's like, ha, 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 you screwed yourself out of a career. Yes. Oh, we will never see you wrestle ever again. Dun, dun, dun. And then we on end. the next episode of Dragon Ball. Comes <laughs> back. Yes. Now, of course, this is professional wrestling, where retirements are elastic, to say the least. And in fact, bizarrely, uh, Conan El Barbaro would wrestle Jake Snake Roberts in the event of Triple Mania 2. However, that is a year away. And at this particular point, this perfectly good wrestling match which is just done in the wrong style at the wrong time for the wrong audience, apparently, we think, anyway, because you like watch the match and go, my God, that must have gone over like a fucked lift. Um, and then, no, no, it's, it's really, really an incredible ending because there are literally grown women and grown men crying, like all of them. At least twenty thousand people have, have like bawling their eyes out, just screaming, just just crying. People invade the ring to congratulate Conan on his career, and it's like, oh my god, I. When would this ever happen? Now. It is a very. There's a. Like consequences hit harder than the match did. Yes. The aftermath is more compelling than the match. Yeah, it's far more interesting to watch the reactions of these kids and young women and uh, this, this middle-aged lady at ringside who's really quite angry about the whole thing. <laughs> um, she's quite unreserved in her disappointment of what has gone on and you can't do that kind of thing here and what do you think you're playing at? And yeah. And it's... Still real to them, but it was then 28 years ago, and I don't think you you kind of still get that reaction in Mexico now. 
but the crowd is a lot smarter than they used to be, certainly than they were at this particular point. But equally, it's still quite the thing to watch these people react the way that they do. It's very real, isn't it? It's very visceral. It's very much like it's the kind of thing that you want wrestling to be like. Yeah, it's it's a reaction, which isn't something you don't always get. Like no. you can see some of the best matches ever, and people won't react like they did here. No. It's it's just it's good. It's I think it's worth watching it just for the last ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, you, often the last hear, you often hear people make the fucking riot comments. They're like, oh, if X doesn't win, we'll riot here. You could have believed it would have bloody happened. Oh, uh, yeah. No, they they if if Conan, you know, if I think maybe that's what kind of the, they were reading the audience. Maybe that's why they had a kind of straight up technical wrestling match. And it was like, well, calm some expectations down because we just had that riot go off. But yeah, it was it was strange, but good. And I kind of think that's the kind of like legacy of the main event. Obviously, we talked about the legacy of the wrestlers involved in this main event. You know, the entire wrestling, Mexican wrestling scenery over the next five years is completely upended by people shuffling back and forth to AAA. You know, the next big shift for CMLL is when they sign El Hijo del Santo back and he turns heel and essentially hell freezes over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's like the Conan heel turn uh, a couple of years down the line, there's El Gringo's Locust to come. Rey Mysterio's rise through the ranks to being an absolute superstar and carrying the company. There's the connections with ECW and the way that they start booking the matches in a much more hardcore style. There's an awful lot of good stuff to come, but it starts here. And for me, it's like I saw it all play out at the time. So it's still interesting to me. So I was intrigued to see what your take is an outsider watching it. I think, like, if you would, we discussed this off air, but if you watch modern AAA, it looks much more like an American wrestling show than Lucha Libre. This looks like Lucha Libre, whereas that looks like an American wrestling show with Lucha Libre elements. Does that make sense? It, it does, but. It... I always sort of question this because Lucha Libre, to me, growing up with the wrestling I did, was always the sort of the flippiest stuff, the the fast-paced stuff, the all the masks and the sort of grandiose nature of it. Whereas this, it's still fast compared to what you'd probably see elsewhere, but it just feels kind of like. I guess this is what people decry Lucha should be, but I kind of prefer what it's become, where it's this sort of hybrid of still really fast, really innovative, really risky stuff. Like, hell, I love seeing Vikingo, Black Tarus, people like that, Psycho Mm. Clown, all the stuff they do. But I also love the more hardcore nature of modern AAA. Like when they did the tour with MLW, I got to see Mance Warner and Savio Vega have a street fight with Pagano and Martiz. 
and someone got set on fire. It's just... <laughs> Modern Lucha Libre has become this really hybrid product. It's not just Lucha now. It tries to take elements from everything to make this complete cluster of a style, which is funny considering how much of a cluster, like a cluster, most of these matches were. So it's it's still there. It's just done in a different way for a more modern audience. It kind of evolved with the times. I th- yeah, I think CMLL has evolved as well in its the sense it's a much more linear style. We aren't concentrating on CMLL today, but CMLL is is still the more conservative promotion. They wouldn't have hardcore matches. They wouldn't do you know, big bloody matches if they could get away with it. They're, they're a family-orientated professional wrestling promotion. So, like, they're kind of like New Japan, whereas AAA are kind of like... AAA are kind of like WWE in the sense of they're about characters and entertainment, but they're much more violent than WWE ever would be. Um, but, yeah, it's... I think I think you can see the, the kernel of what's going to go, what's going to happen with AAA... Because obviously the Penn family are still involved in AAA. It's still the kind of same direction that Antonia wanted to go in. Um, who, of course, there is a remarkable number of wrestlers and personnel who are no longer with us, unfortunately. But 28 years is a long time, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, you know, um, <clears throat> it's it's um, it's intrigues it intrigues me now as I watch it back. And realize how many people kind of influence pro wrestling surreptitiously. Like Love Machine is a good example. Like you would not have um, the Eddie Guerrero we knew and love without Love Machine. You know that that just doesn't happen because of the Lagros Green Ghost tag team. Eddie will catch on anywhere, but I think he was supercharged by what Art was doing. Obviously, he was a massive influence on Eddie because Art did the frog splash before Eddie did. Eddie adopted it as a tribute to Art Bar. Um, you know, it's I think Paraguayo's kind of brawling style was ahead of its time. He was never a great technical wrestler. He'd be the first to admit that. But his never-say-die babyface attitude is a big influence on people like Tommy Dreamer. You know, he's got that kind of attack and and, and development that influenced lots of different people even though he's not as well known as some people of his of his era even and of course the biggest name on this card or the biggest name that will come out of this card is Rey Mysterio Jr and this is where he starts his kind of like rise to the top this is where it all begins for him isn't it yeah this is where you start to see the wheels starting to turn and the company putting their faith in him yeah, it's 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 incredible, really. It really is, and I think that's really where the kind of legacy of this show is. Uh, is it great? I don't think it is. I think it's a perfectly serviceable, serviceable wrestling card with some good spots in it. Um, however, there can't be Triple Mania two or Triple Mania three or Triple Mania twenty seven without this one first, can there? No, this is kind of where it all begins, and you can see what they want to do, how they want to go about doing it, just, it's, again, 28 years is a long time, and we've come a long way, 
with how wrestling is presented, how it's organized, how it's booked, that this almost looks archaic, which is hilarious when hilariously sad when you think it's only 28 years ago. It is, but I think the speed that with which the speed with which lucha changes compared to other wrestling styles is yeah just because everyone moves that much faster and then everybody moves that much faster still it's when you so especially when you're talking about aerial wrestling there is like there is uh parallels between people like Rey Mysterio and uh Rey Phoenix obviously because you know Mysterio named Ray Phoenix Ray Phoenix <laughs> or he believed that he's kind of got that kind of game changing aerial ability Pentagon Junior doesn't exist without Octagon first because Pentagon came along as the heel success the heel antagonist to Octagon's baby face the Pentagon Junior was the offspring of Pentagon so you know there's there's obvious things there that kind of link things together uh, Pentagon Junior becoming a much bigger star than either of those two. Um, Octagon, oh yeah, that was the that was the brilliant thing. Octagon a couple of years ago left AAA and quit because they wanted to name his successor as Octagon Junior or El Hijo del Octagon, and he was like, "No, it's my name." But it turns out AAA owned the rights to the name, <laughs> so he's had to call his protege. Octagon Junior. So, because, yeah, they'd already copywritten the name El Hijo del Octagon. So, there you go. It's this, this, like Mexican naming of wrestlers and licensing of names is, is worth an entire podcast in itself. But, anywho. So, that was Triple Mania, really. Have you anything else to say about it, John? Not really. It's, it's an interesting time capsule of what earlier Lucha Libre was like sort of how AAA started off and how they went about building stars it's it's nice to see some of the people who I've heard of who are no longer with us sort of how they wrestled how they performed and how they were received and it's nice to look at the sort of legacy they sure had with the talent involved the talent it inspired and as I said I can still watch LA Park kick people's ass now it's amazing (laughs) All right, then, we'll call it it for the Troopany show today. My name's James Troopany. Thank you for listening to the show. John, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at John Deathman. That is the gateway to hell to find anything involving yours truly, the literary king of the death match. And yeah, I seem to be on here often enough. <laughs> <laughs> You can find me at Troopany at Troopany Show. You can find me at Sheriff Lonestar. You can find me on the Troopany Show. Oh, no, try to try this again. You can find me at Sheriff Lonestar. You can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter and sorry, the Troopany Show on Facebook and on Patreon, the Troopany Show, where you can keep us free forever for everyone. We'll be back next week. I think we may have had Castle Attack by then, so it might be a bit of a New Japan day. Bit of nuge. Wait, there's another Castle Attack? Not Castle Attack. Whatever the next one is. It'll be the Sakura. That's it. Secure Genesis. Castle Attack, Secure Genesis. They're all the same as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to watch New Japan. Yeah, it's the main event I'm not looking forward to. 
I don't know, maybe it's just 30 minutes of him getting hit in the head with a chair. That would be fun. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, is it, really? It's a radical new change for New Japan. Radical new change for New Japan. Yes, no, I've got a feeling it might actually go for quite a length of time. Uh, If those of you don't know, that match with Billiam versus Shingo got five and a half stars off Dave Meltzer this week, and I'm like, Really? Did you watch the same match I did? <laughs> I, I think I've ranted enough at the end of last week's podcast about... It just here's the thing. Ignore Dave Meltzer. That's all we need to say. Have your own opinions. If you like it, you like it. You don't even have to listen to us. We'll guide you through stuff. You can make your own opinions about it. There's a reason why we don't give star ratings. There's a reason why we just say it as it is and what we think. And we go a bit deeper into our analysis because there's a ton of stuff out there that requires more thought than 5.5 stars. Now, don't get me wrong. Dave does write loads of stuff about those particular matches, and he has good judgment, historically speaking. There are a few other things that I disagree with Mr. Meltzer on. I will not go into them right now, but there's no way that's a five-and-a-half-star match for them two last it wasn't a good Shingo match. I went no. back and watched it because I was just intrigued by how outraged people got by it. And it's it's a bad Shingo match because he's trying to play to Osprey style and it doesn't work. Whereas last time they fought, it was a Shingo match and Osprey wasn't a bell end then. Yes, well, uh, to be fair. Well, it wasn't known Osprey was a bell end then. <laughs> well, no, Sorry. it was known he was a bell end. It was just more expressed less more, more quietly then. But yeah, I, that's not a five and a half star match by any means. It's a three star at best. And that's yeah. purely because it's Shingo. I think Dave Finley and Jay White was match of the tournament for me. And it was a much better story and a much better technical match than that was. It wasn't like Shingo had an off night. It, it, it was all right. But it wasn't, you know, it. There was also the lack of interest from me, which probably is going to sully it a little bit. But if I'm looking at it objectively, it wasn't as good as the other stuff in the tournament. It just wasn't. Anywho, we'll call it for today, and we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.